Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Richard L. Hassan, author of the book A Real Right to Vote, How a Constitutional Amendment Can Safeguard American Democracy. Rick, welcome to the New Books Network. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I've been studying election law for about 30 years. And when I started, it was kind of a backwater. It used to be very cyclical. Uh, now I feel like it's more than a full-time job. But the election season never ends and the concerns about our elections never end. So uh, at one point, uh, the, the New York Times' Adam Liptek called me America's number one election law obsessive. So <laughs> I, I, I guess I'll wear that proudly. It's, I, the uh, the importance and, and the relevance of uh, your your area really comes out in this book with all the examples that you cite of it. What led you to uh, write a book talking about a constitutional amendment and, and, and perhaps more significantly, why now? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it has to do with what I've seen over the last 30 years uh, in teaching and writing about election law. Uh, so when I start teaching my class, and uh, this uh, is something I'm doing right now, we've just started classes over at UCLA, I start off with a series of cases in which uh, the Supreme Court expanded the right to vote through a very generous reading of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. These cases establish something called strict scrutiny for people who are uh, citizen, adult, resident, non-felons, can't discriminate against them, have to weigh their votes equally, a whole series of cases. And um, it struck me that uh, for many years that this was a pretty good arrangement, even though the Constitution itself doesn't explicitly guarantee an affirmative right to vote, uh, it's been interpreted to have lots of protections. But over time, as the Supreme Court has changed in its composition and in its ideology, came clear to me that uh, the uh, the uh, Supreme Court was not up to the task and was not really interested in vigorously enforcing voting rights. And that uh, the kinds of continuous problems that we see with our elections are only going to get worse until we make some kind of structural change. And so I was encouraged uh, by an editor at the New York Times to write a piece laying out my idea for why we might want to have constitutional right to vote. I wrote that piece in 2020. And then I decided that would be my next book project. And so I worked for the next few years on what would a right to vote in the Constitution look like? What would be the defenses of it? What would be the path to getting it? And that's what led to this new book, A Real Right to Vote. I'd like to start our examination of the book by addressing the overall case that you outline in your introduction. Why do we need specifically a constitutional amendment to guarantee the right to vote, especially given the you know previous two centuries of American history where we've seen a gradual expansion of voting rights over time without having such an amendment? Well, what I would say is that uh, you know the idea that voting rights have always been expanding uh, is not necessarily true. And more importantly, it's not the product of the Supreme Court. Uh, many people 
erroneously think of the Supreme Court as a great protector of voting rights, but let me give you two examples that come early in the book. First, the, there was a, a woman uh, named Virginia Minor. She went to the Supreme Court in 1874, and she said, look, you've just passed the 14th Amendment. It's now part of the Constitution. One of the things it guarantees is that citizens get all the privileges or immunities of citizenship. I should be allowed to vote because I'm a citizen and voting is a, a privilege of citizenship. And the uh, uh, Supreme Court said, you are a citizen, but voting uh, is a question of state law. And because you're a woman and the state of Missouri says only men can vote, you can be disenfranchised. It then took uh, decades until we got the passage of the 19th Amendment, which bars discrimination in voting on the basis of sex uh, in order for women to become enfranchised. Another example, even more egregious than this, is in 1903, a man named Jackson Giles goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and he says, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a citizen. I'm an adult. I'm a resident of the state of Alabama. Alabama is not letting me register to vote because I'm black. And this is in violation of the 15th Amendment, another amendment passed after the Civil War, uh, that bars discrimination in voting on the basis of race. And the Supreme Court said, yes, it's true that the 15th Amendment bars discrimination on the basis of race, but there's really nothing we can do about it. This is really going to be something that is going to have to be decided politically. We're powerless. And so these are two pretty strong examples where the Supreme Court refused to expand voting rights. In fact, if you look at the 235-year history of the Supreme Court, there was only about a less than decade period during the period of the Warren Court in the 1960s where the court was expanding voting rights. In more recent years, the court has been uh, shrinking voting rights, making it easier for states to impose rules that could make it harder for people to register or to vote also limiting Congress's power to broadly enforce the Voting Rights Act. It was really the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that led to the enfranchisement of African-American voters in the South. So really, uh, the Supreme Court has mostly stood as an impediment. Now, some people have said, well, you know, if you look at the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment and the 19th Amendment, those I just mentioned, along with the 23rd Amendment, which gave Washington, D.C. residents the right to vote for president, the 24th Amendment, which barred federal poll taxes, and the 26th Amendment, which bars discrimination in voting on the basis of being between 18 and 21 years old, that there is already protection for voting rights in the Constitution. Well, the... Uh, this was an argument that was made most recently by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, striking down a key part of the Voting Rights Act. It's true that it is possible that, this, that the Constitution could be read, take these different pieces, put them together, and you could have uh, an argument for a right to vote. But in fact, the conservative court is not willing to do that. Justice Ginsburg spoke in dissent. And if we're really going to get protection for voting rights, we're going to have to do it through the same kind of political movement that came after Minor versus Happersett for those decades-long struggle to get women the vote. It required organizing. It required getting people in different states to actually do something to um, further voting rights. And so that's why I think this is the moment the court is not protecting our rights. There's a lot of fights over voting right now. There's all kinds of questions about whether 
voting rights for president can be taken away by state legislatures. All of this creates the conditions where now is the time to start organizing around a constitutional right to vote. I have to say, reading it, that for me was one of the most dispiriting parts of your book, which was the long history that you detail in it of the courts repeatedly deciding against uh, the right to vote. I mean, you you talk about how there was that, that Warren era in the 1960s where you had a Supreme Court that was actively advancing it. But as you demonstrate, that was the exception rather than the rule. And that you have instead examples of uh, through uh, over a much longer span of time of restrictions of, of the rights of uh, of voting rights of felons, the voting rights of, of, of serving members of the military, and the voting rights of students. It's all of the above and more. Uh, I have another chapter that talks about the voting rights of Native Americans, uh, where uh, North Dakota had come in and had made it more um, difficult for people who don't have residential addresses to register to vote. Well, who doesn't have a residential address? It turns out very few people lack a residential address if they're uh, unless they are homeless. They lack, a, you know, most people have a residential address, but that is not true for uh, people who live on some Indian reservations where they do not have residential addresses, where there is a, a an entire uh, set of um, uh, people who uh, live under poor conditions, have trouble getting access to mail, have trouble getting access to Xerox machines, which you'd need to make copies of your ID if you want to register to vote by mail. I mean, all kinds of things that, you know, for most people are not really impediments. For some people are huge impediments, and the courts have not really stepped up to protect those people's voting rights. And if we believe that we are a society of political equals, where I can't judge whether you are uh, more... Um, deserving of the vote than I am. If we're political equals, everyone who meets the basic criteria, citizen, adult, residence, and uh, at least for some, the question of felon status, once you meet those criteria, it should be easy for you to vote. And the state should have a way to easily uh, determine whether or not you're eligible to vote. I, I was thinking about a, another group you described in, in uh, your book, which was the the people who live in U.S. territories. You, you have the when you start talking about how uh, an amendment would uh, establishing the right to vote would expand voting rights, you mentioned in particular the case of people in Puerto Rico and how you mentioned how they the, the Supreme Court handed down an eight to one decision uh, in which they said that there is no right, you know, to to vote in, you know, national elections from Puerto Rico. And the dissenting vote came from someone who had that, you know, personal background. So does Sonia Sotomayor was a, a daughter of, of of Puerto Rican parents, and she understood the, the, this on a practical level. And yet the other eight justices, you know, regardless of their, you know, ideological assignments, are you know, were completely unaware of this. And it, it gets to that, I think that the 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 gulf between the the perspective that you sometimes uh see in these justices expressed in, in, in the cases you described and the reality on the ground. Well, the reality on the ground is very easy when you see as a you know uh, uh generally I think the people who are reading my book are going to be educated. They're not going to be very poor people. Uh they're more likely to be white. You know, the people who uh are out there, college educated, these are people who are most likely to not have impediments to voting. And so unless you kind of think about 
where there are these kinds of limitations on voting rights, it's, it's very easy to ignore and to not recognize that uh, even though voting is easy for most people, it's not easy for everyone. And given the decentralization of our elections and the fact that we're in a very polarized era right now, politically polarized, where uh, those who control uh, elections, uh, mo most notably state legislatures, might see a political advantage to making it harder for some people to register or to vote. There's just too much of an incentive to be able to try to manipulate what the electorate looks like in the hopes of trying to affect outcomes. I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, one of the early cases I talk about in the book, uh, probably be surprising to a lot of uh, listeners to this podcast, in the 1960s, if you were a member of the military who got stationed in Texas, you were disenfranchised. Texas didn't let military members vote. And one of the things Texas said in trying to defend its law at the Supreme Court was, uh, if we allow military voters, mil military members to vote, what we're essentially going to do is let them change public policy because they're going to be able to elect people that they want. Now, I would call that a feature, not a bug of democracy. Of course, <laughs> when you when you let people vote, they could affect the outcome. Uh, but, uh, you know, the you know, the idea that was implicit in this was, you know, it's kind of a real community, the people who've lived in this community longer. And then there are the people who come in as outsiders. Why should they get the franchise? You know, and uh, that kind of idea, I think, although it's not fashionable to talk about it these days, I think still animates fights over, for example, student voting, Native American voting, et cetera. It, it is sad to think that in this day and age, you have to write a book in which you have to make that case for the the benefits of, of, of establishing and even expanding a right to vote. And you do so uh, in, in uh, several of the chapters. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, start us off examining that part of the book by talking about uh, how exactly how an amendment simply establishing a constitutional right to vote would result in, in an expansion of voting rights for uh, groups uh, under uh, American law who have that right limited or denied to them altogether currently. So today, because of uh, different amendments to the Constitution, there are certain forms of discrimination that are not allowed. But there are other kinds of discrimination uh, that that remain okay. And so my amendment would not just deal with outright disenfranchisement, which is um, something that is uh, you know pretty tough to do, except for some groups like, uh, as we've talked about felons or people who live in certain US territories. Um, but what are we going to do about laws that make it harder to register or to vote? And so my amendment would do a number of things. One of the things it would do is say that people have the right to vote uh, who are citizen, adult, resident, non-felons, but putting aside the, the question of the territories for a moment, give them voting rights, including the right to vote for president. And you might think, we all have the right to vote for president. Well, back in 2000, in the case called Bush versus Gore, where the Supreme Court ended the disputed 2000 election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, the Supreme Court said, reaffirmed, you know, under Article 2 of the Constitution, people don't have the right to vote for president. It's only because states have given them that right, but states could take it away. Uh, you know, you could have a state uh, legislature decide we're going to appoint electors going forward ourselves. And the Supreme Court said that that's just fine. So my amendment would prevent that. 
wouldn't change the Electoral College. Uh, I, I talk about that as well in the book. But even within a state, what determines how the state's Electoral College votes are going to be uh, determined? Well, what determines how Electoral College votes are going to be allocated? It's going to be a vote of the people. And so this is a, a really important provision, especially because in the 2020 election, we saw attempts to try to subvert the outcome of the election by trying to make claims the state legislatures had certain power to uh, take away the vote of the people, and uh, even after they had voted. Uh, and so those attempts would clearly be wrong. So in addition to uh, protecting the right to vote itself in, in all elections where, you're, where we're going to, once a state decides to hold an election, it's going to have to be done uh, under principles of political equality. Then there's the question of what about these impediments like um, rules that make it hard for people to register or to vote? And uh, my proposed amendment would deal with that by uh, reversing what the Supreme Court has done in the past. In the past, the Supreme Court has put a thumb on the scale favoring states. It said states have to um, only come up with a plausible reason for why they're uh, making uh, a, a voting harder, like they're trying to preserve voter confidence or prevent voter fraud. They don't really have to prove that these are problems. But voters or would-be voters have to show that the restrictions that the state has put in place uh, are imposing significant burdens. And so I would flip that and say, you know, the presumption should be that the the, the thumb on the scale should be pro-voter. And it should be up to the state to show that it has a really good reason for putting a roadblock in front of people who would like to register or to vote. And the amendment would also instruct the Supreme Court to be deferential to voters and to be deferential to Congress when Congress passes voting rights laws like parts of the Voting Rights Act that are meant to enfranchise more voters. Now, what you're describing is something that you know, is is bound to be contentious. And what uh, should such an amendment be ratified, you are going to have all sorts of challenges to it. And yet you make your case in the book that an amendment would actually contribute to a, a lowering of the temperature, a uh, reduction in not just the litigation that we're constantly seeing over voting rights in America, but also hopefully, you know, from that a, a, a reduction in the amount of polarization that we're currently seeing over the uh, over the question of voting rights. Uh, could, could you explain how the an amendment would uh, achieve that goal? So part of what uh, we see uh, in uh, the you know, the, the current atmosphere is a tremendous amount of litigation over these rules about registration and voting and early voting and voting by mail and all of this. Much of that litigation circles around questions of voter registration. And so one of the things my amendment would do is it would require that there be automatic registration conducted by the government of all uh, eligible people to become voters and the creation of an identification system. Uh, most other uh, democracies have some forms of voter ID because they have a national identification card. Now, the problem with ID is not the, the problem in theory, it's that it is has been uh, uh, implemented by states in a discriminatory way. And so really what, uh, you know, I think we're going to see if we had an amendment would be 
registration and fights about ID would essentially disappear once states, uh, or if states don't want to, they could um, pass it on to the federal government. Once they set up their system for ensuring that, um, uh, you know, that there's a, a sound registration process, there'd be much less to fight over. And so the kind of voting wars that we've seen where there's litigation, and we've seen a tripling of litigation in the period since 2000 compared to the period before 2000. Uh, one of the uh, things that would happen is there'd be much less litigation, and that would make our elections less contentious. Uh, you, you couple that with a thumb on the scale favoring voters, and then we can fight about other things like who's a better candidate rather than trying to shake the electorate and who gets to uh, uh, easily cast their ballots and who does not. Now, what you describe is a very uh, encouraging picture of what such an amendment would achieve. And yet you do so by setting the context of the political world we inhabit today, one in which there is considerable polarization and contentiousness over the question of voting rights. So it's understandable why you then have your, your final chapter being about how we can pass such an amendment, because it, it seems as though the, the odds against it, I mean, on one hand, uh, and for one thing, you only have the Constitution Amendment a grand total of 27 times in the past uh, 200 plus years. And then you have added to this the fact that this is such a uh, politically contentious issue that the odds of it passing seem long at best. How do you, is it that you think we can actually successfully see such an amendment become a part of the United States Constitution? So uh, I, I acknowledge this early in the book. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, uh, the... Um, uh, Democrats attempting to pass voting rights legislation in 2022, the For the People Act, um, the, the, they couldn't even get regular statutory uh, voting rights laws put in place, which don't require the kind of supermajority in the Congress and the supermajority of states, uh, legislatures to ratify. So why even propose this? And I have really two answers. Uh, one is that um, it's important to uh, set a marker for uh, what it is that uh, we want to see in this country and organize a political movement around it. And so I go back again to the example of the 19th Amendment. After the Supreme Court in 1874 said that the Constitution doesn't protect women's right to vote, okay, well, now it became a state-by-state -state battle. And by the time the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920, 30 states had put in their constitutions a uh, ban on discrimination and voting on the basis of gender. And so a political movement arose through this process. Uh, so, uh, you know, one answer to why we need to do this is we need to think big. Uh, and the other answer is that the very act of organizing for a constitutional amendment and organizing state by state, for example, to strengthen state constitutional rights to vote, that will pay dividends along the way. And it will focus people's efforts rather than simply on fighting the next skirmish, the next skirmish in the voting wars, instead to think more broadly and more, um, I think, um, holistically about what we want this century's uh, democracy in the United States to look like. 
that certainly gives your book a long lifespan because what you are articulating is very much a campaign of uh, of you know years, maybe even decades, rather than just something that we can expect to see happen in a single congressional term. Absolutely right. I think that um, there's too much of a focus on short-term thinking. And there's not enough thinking about how we can make change. We've lost our muscle memory in passing constitutional amendments. The last voting-related amendment was the 26th Amendment in 1971. Many Americans were not alive in 1971. We need to start thinking about what would it look like to pass such an amendment. And one of the things I argue is that if we take uh, those on the right at face value in terms of what they say they want out of a voting system, there are a lot of benefits, a lot of good things that are in this constitutional amendment. For example, voter identification. That's something that's been you know, an important, uh, at least rhetorical argument on the right for why we need to have uh, these kinds of um, uh, rules to uh, limit how easy it is for people to register or to vote. In addition, both uh, the right and left have an interest in preventing election subversion uh, because, uh, you know, we don't know who the next person is who's going to try to steal uh, the um, uh, the next uh, election. And finally, and just thinking about Republican self-interest, right now we're seeing a realignment of the parties where working class voters are becoming more attracted to a populist party uh, that is led by Donald Trump. Well, we know that those working class voters are voters who are most likely to be the ones who are going to have a difficult time navigating stricter voting rules. And so it might even be in the partisan interest of the Republican Party to ease those voting rules and to make it easier for everyone to vote. One of the things we've seen in the Trump era is that we've had relatively high turnout. Uh, why is that? Because people are really motivated. They like Trump, they don't like Trump, but they, they're interested enough that they're coming out to vote. Well, let's make it so that we can have even higher turnout and not put impediments in front of any voters who are trying to uh, cast a ballot that will be counted fairly. We appreciate the time you've t taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, the, the next uh, project that I'm working on is going to uh, deal with the question of political polarization. And particularly, if we think about our election rules, they weren't really designed for a period of polarization. Uh, they were not, you know, designed to think back to the beginning of the Constitution. There was no recognition of political parties. They really emerged right after uh, the Constitution is passed. In a period of intense partisan competition, how can you have voting rules that not only will assure fair elections, but will assure that people will have confidence that their elections are going to be that that their votes are going to be fairly counted, and that election results will accurately reflect. The, the views of uh, the majority of those who vote in a particular election. Uh, this question of uh, how to assure voter confidence is especially difficult in the current era because of the rise of social media and the lowered costs of spreading false and misleading information about elections. So in this polarized environment, where misinformation can spread so easily, what can we do to assure not only that we have fair elections, but elections that people will consider legitimate? 
not sure exactly what the answer to that is going to be. Uh, that is uh, my next project. But I think it's an urgent one that we really have to address if this democracy is going to continue. It does sound like very important work, and I really wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Rick, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. This was really great to get to talk about uh, the book, and uh, I hope to spur some people into political action on the question of voting rights. <laughs>